Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, John Whittingdale takes a break from Brexit to address the issues that matter to the media. We talk loopholes and Leveson 2. As the BBC brings back its pop-up station Radio 2 Country, y'all, we head to Maida Vale to discuss how these temporary channels are changing the radio brand. Plus, the new day is one week old. We take a look at its first five editions. Are there early signs of success for BBC Three's Move Online? And the media quiz heads to Salford for a spot of natural history. That's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me this Friday at the Hospital Club, it's the Managing Director of Lemonade Money, the award-winning Faraz Osman. Thank you, the award-winning Lemonade Money. How long do we can, can we keep that up for before it gets tired? Uh, we won our Sony Award in 2010, we're still playing on it. Locking <laughs> <laughs> uh, it for all it's worth. Yeah, and uh, what have you been up to this week, Faraz? We're actually looking at planning for 2016. We've got some interesting thoughts about other things that we want to do, including, I don't know if I can reveal it, but we are, we are chatting Go about on. some original content stuff. Um, and uh, whether or not we should be doing our, our own bits and pieces away from other broadcasters. So that's quite exciting. Breaking out on your own. Not breaking out on our own, but yeah, just yeah, ensuring you are, that you're we're... You're the Zayn uh, Malik of we, uh, <laughs> indie TV production company. Is that companies. racist? I feel that's racist. <laughs> I'm like, that is a classic <laughs> example of you interpreting something that I said in complete innocence. Hashtag uh, Project Diamond. Um, <laughs> and joining Faraz, the deputy editor of Metro.co.uk, uh, it is the digital media brain and body of Alex Hudson. Media and body? Yeah. That's, how is a body digital? Well, you're, you're, well, if you don't know that, I'm not sure you should be in post, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, what's been going on at metro.co.uk, Alex? Two You've been things. doing very well, according to your own masthead. According to our own masthead? Yeah. <laughs> that is the meanest thing you've ever well, said. Well, no, no. I've, the only source I've seen for how many shares you've been getting is you proudly boasting on your own masthead that you've got millions. The ABC well stand those up, but thank you. Um, two things. One is we're busy planning for the next two years, the big, serious future of metro.co.uk. And I spent the morning chasing after a man called a man in the shed. So we've we've found this what, man. What do you on, mean? We found this man on Facebook who's receiving random messages from strangers, making slightly racist jokes about the fact he's called a man in the shed, saying, "Can you please get out of my shed?" Well, his name is Amin Arshed. Yes, that's amazing. And we're trying to work out if it's a lie, if it's a spoof, if it's made up, we still don't know so all of that could be entirely false so we're trying to stand it up and work out if it's true or not. And doing the rigorous journalistic work to find out whether Amin Ashed is a real man or not, does that tally very strongly with the serious big future of metro.co.uk? Yes. Okay. Yes it entirely does both 
serious stories and actually being a place where the most ridiculous things of the internet, you can find out if they're true or not. Brave new world, or should we say new day? More of that later. Uh, the uh, culture secretary, John Whittingdale, he says laughing. No one ever says that laughing, uh, was at the Oxford Media Convention this week. He addressed a few hot potatoes there, including the BBC and Leveson too. Yes, that really is a thing. Are we ever going to stop talking about Leveson? And then he dodged a few other issues, like Channel 4, uh, before throwing in a curveball on ad blocking. Uh, but for us, let's start with the BBC, uh, as is traditional here. Uh, the Guardian reported on Friday that there won't be a white paper until after the referendum. Uh, what did the Culture Secretary say in Oxford? I think the most pertinent thing is obviously that he's closing the iPlayer loophole. I mean, it's, it's about time that that's happened. I think a lot of people have been... Uh, gaming the system and uh, it so this is people bit... not paying their license fee but watching the BBC online yeah exactly and, and I think that there's a uh, that, that has it's just you need to future proof the BBC if you want to continue going down a, a license fee route um, you have to ensure that anybody that's consuming BBC content is, is paying fairly for it and I think it's sensible that we close that if we're going to continue using the license fee as a way that we're going to fund the BBC and then there's obviously some chatter where you said it wasn't distinctive enough and, and that's obviously made ITV and all those guys very happy um I guess it's always a challenge for the BBC, isn't it? They've either got one question, which is, you're not distinctive enough, you're not doing enough like niche programming about the arts, and then you've got another thing that says, well, you're not being mainstream enough, no one's watching your content. So they've, they're in this kind of purgatory for the rest of their days, and, and this is just where, where the side of the coin is landing today. And um, I think it's slightly unfair. I think the, the BBC continue to do stuff that's on both sides of the spectrum, and... Um, uh, and as I always argue and I kind of agree with you have to do some populist things to ensure that it cuts through and like I always say I don't think anybody else can do Dragon's Den or The Apprentice or Bake Off as populist and as well as, as the BBC does I think if you saw any of those shows on, on ITV in fact there was like an ITV version of Dragon's Den do you remember oh, that? Oh Fortune with Peter Jones that's the one which I so bloody love that show no but so it was so awful. bad it was good I don't think that's an argument that would stand up for the BBC or oh, look at our content it's so bad that it's good I can't imagine Whittingdale <laughs> being, uh, being too enamoured by that actually I may have just Inflated two shows in my head. There was one which, no, okay, Tycoon with Peter Jones was the one I really enjoyed. <laughs> Whatever it is. Fortune was the one which was just basically people begging for money. It was Dragon's Den, but instead of saying I have an idea, it was just I'm really poor. Can you give me some money, please, Duncan Banatine? So that sounds show, like, yeah, it shows how memorable those shows were that you have no <laughs> idea what they're called or really what happened in either. No, 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 no. It, Tycoon was good. I promise, Tycoon <laughs> was good. Um, Whittingdale, Alex, has also been talking about Leveson Two, uh, Return of the Sith, and everyone breathes out and groans, and it's. I don't see what more we need to discover. I think, you know, Leveson was very much... We already know most of the things that were going on in Leveson, even way before Leveson. We, it just took that full stop at the end of that period of journalism, happily before I ever became a journalist. The, the worst bits of that happened. And now you're thinking, OK, great, we know that journalism has been broken and that people have been doing questionable things on, on legal grounds or even on moral grounds. OK, right, the journalism has stepped on and jumped up and changed and we still don't quite know how journalism works yet but the idea that we're somehow trying to distill that into a here's everything that's wrong already seems either premature or way too late it's just a really confusing time as to why you would start that now and would you say that to hacked off if they were in the room you know they don't need to keep bashing on about this it's all been dealt with we're, we're all good boys now i don't think we're all good i think we don't really at metro Kadike follow the celebrities round and we don't push them we find if a story is only a story if it's a celebrity doing something. So that's the differentiation that we've made. They have to be doing something for it to be worth us chasing and writing about. And the members of Hacked Off are right to feel aggrieved that they've been chased down the street for whatever reason. And if the law isn't robust enough to say, is this in the public interest? Is this fact, is it worth pursuing? The law is already there. All of the mechanisms are in place to enforce all of these things. 
It's just that if they're not being followed, that's not something that Leveson 2 needs to explore. It's just something that needs working through on existing legislation. Uh, Faraz, there was a lot of scepticism that the Tories were going to brush under the carpet after the election, all of this press regulation stuff. But Whittingdale is meeting hacked off. Uh, do you think there is actually a, a desire to try and clean things up still? I, I think, that I'm, I'm really curious because I work in the TV industry and I work in the broadcast industry and we don't do journalism in, from a print point of view. In fact, we don't do news at, at Lemonade Money or any of the work that I've done previously. But I, I just find it so bizarre that we've had a massive inquiry where Leveson made some recommendations and, and the press are able to just turn around and go, well, that was nice and thanks for that inquiry, but we're just going to ignore you and we're not going to take on any of, any of the recommendations and and actually we don't need any of that and I, I think that that's frustrating from my viewpoint when I think Ofcom you know it's not perfect but actually it's kept it's kept broadcast and, and in particular the, the journalism on, on broadcast news pretty strong and robust and I think that we've had some really great breaking stories that have happened across broadcast news from Sky, from Sky News to, to Newsnight um, we've had some really strong stories from there and it's, it's never really stopped them from, from breaking news stories just as well as, as print journalism has and in addition to that I really do think that if we had a situation where television was investigated in the same way that the press was investigated via the Leveson inquiry, spent all of that public money, went through all of that rigorous process, and then television turned around and said, you know what, we're cool and we can regulate ourselves and don't worry about it. I think the press would actually hang them and would say, I cannot believe that the TV or the BBC or ITV are able to get away with this. There seems to be one rule for newspapers and another rule for everybody else. Okay, talking about the press and impartial news in the press, I have here a copy of the paper that says (laughs) it's completely politically impartial. Trinity Mirror's new publication, New Day. Uh, It's been on sale for a week, uh, and the early signs are that around 150,000 people a day are picking up the paper, although uh, that is at the trial price of 25 pence. It's going to go up to 50p soon. Uh, on the first day, Monday, about 1.5 million people are said to have tried the free edition. Uh, I've got Thursday's copy here. Whilst everyone else was talking about Europe, their front page is a photo montage of children with meningitis and a story about the footballer Adam Johnson. Uh, and on the back, uh, this newspaper that says it's offering something different to the internet has, can you guess, these four internet cats? Uh, but let's talk about the tone generally of the paper. Uh, Alex Hudson, what do you reckon? I think, first of all, to call a paper without a view and then run a piece in it about Donald Trump and how it would be abhorrent for him to become president, that you're already going against your whole reason d'etre if you're coming out as this impartial newspaper. And people like hearing opinions. So the, the opinion pieces in it are for and against, are interesting. Yeah. But the idea that they don't have columnists and then have Yasmin Alibaya Brown writing stuff and they have a number of other big traditional columnists in there. And I've read through it um, the first few days it's launched and I... And I think the biggest criticism I have of it is that I have no real strong opinion about it. It exists, it's there, it's perfectly pleasant, it's well laid out, it's well thought through. Editorially, it's good-ish. It's just a thing of, it does. It takes a while for a new paper to really develop a voice. But you, you have no idea what the voice is coming from that paper because it's so desperate to be impartial, however impartial it may or may not be. Do you know what it reminds me of, actually, Faraz? Is it reminds me of when there was that battle in London uh, for the free evening sheets before the Evening Standard went free, and we had London Light and the London Paper, if you remember those. Both of them really quite bland, obviously written by kind of young journalists starting out, and a small team, lots of photos. Um, 
and they they kind of pass a journey on the train, don't they? But they were free, and this is twenty five p. Yeah, it does. It did remind me a lot about the London paper, and I actually mourned the loss of the London paper. I really enjoyed it and felt really? like it was. Yeah, I could, just because it it kind of almost to your point that it was it was impartial. It wasn't trying to be a, a shouty newspaper. It was just something that you picked up on the way home, and it had regular features in it, and you kind of flipped through it, and you knew what to expect, and it wasn't something that kind of changed your opinion as such, which. You could argue for a newspaper is a bad thing, but for a for a little commute home, um, it was the right sort of size and the right sort of weight, both politically and physically, for a for a little commute home on, on London, and, and kind of made sense to me. I, I felt it was a better paper than the London Light for sure. Um, and My editor, who used to run the London Light, would be <laughs> vehemently arguing with you about London Light versus London Paper. I think, you know what, I think probably from a design point of view that's where I start from it because I think the London Paper was much better designed and easier to read than London Light. I thought the London Light was okay, a well, Let's not rehash the, but, yeah, <laughs> the route when from, it comes from to, three years ago. Yeah, when it comes to the, to the New Day, there, there are two things that I would say about the New Day. Is Firstly, it's the eye. It just looks like the eye clone. It's, it's almost like the same tone and the same feel as what the Independent have done, and you kind of feel like it's a straight rip-off. I think there was a story about how the Mirror tried to buy the eye yes. and weren't successful, so this does feel like their way of, of getting into that space. Yeah, but well, a friend of the show, Adam Bowie, has been blogging about The New Day this week, suggesting that actually the whole purpose of it is that it is a spoiler, uh, and it's been published simply to ruin the chances of Johnson Press's version of the eye uh, taking off. That, yeah, Mirror wanted to buy it, uh, and then when they couldn't get it, they thought, well, let's just do a version yeah. of it. Seems to me, though, that the eye was based on the independence journalism. <laughs> the New Day being based on the Mirror's journalism is struggling to find quite such yeah. substantial stories to report on. Yeah, and I think for me, it's just a style and form. I've only had a chance to flick through it. But the um, the, the key thing for me is I, I can't... If, if I'm being brutally honest, I, I'm not sure my opinion on the New Day is, is particularly valid. And the reason I say that is because I live in London. And when you live in London, you walk out any tube station mm-hmm. and you get a copy of Stylist or you get a copy of Sport or you get a copy of the enemy, and it's similar in style, or, or, metro. or the metro, or timeout, or coach, um, or coach. And it's <laughs> what and else it's, can we list? <laughs> and, and we, and I think we are spoiled in London by this sort of journalism, this kind of kind of like you know, City AM. Sorry, yeah, I'll stop now. But but in, in particular, this in particular sport and and stylists and shortlist they've all got this kind of like magazine-y feel to them which which this has as well so as a result a lot when I'm flicking through it it feels like stuff that I've seen already because it's it feels like that kind of supplement of, of a newspaper rather than a newspaper in its own right because it's because it's devoid of any opinion and devoid of any political yeah actually leaning you know now you mention that if you take it out of the southeast and you imagine yourself you know in a greasy spoon in Sheffield actually I would be more comfortable in a way reading that than reading the sun or the mirror exactly I suppose from that point of view it is kind of aimed at me. I think there's one key point that's that's a very well-researched rumour doing the rounds around newsrooms is just how furious Johnston Press are about this launch because if they'd have known it was happening, rumours suggest that the premium they paid for the eye might not have been as high as it was. Interesting, okay. And final point, the quality of the paper. This feels like a bizarre thing to be talking about on a podcast that's obsessed with the digital future, but uh, they have invested in nicer-feeling paper. Um, was that was that worth it? I, it's a bit like The Guardian doing their Berliner thing, isn't want, it? I mean, it is better, but does anyone care? Do you want to know what's better than paper? The internet. The internet <laughs> is wonderful and provides you with an infinite amount of news that you would like to talk about, about an infinite number of things, about anything you can think about. It allows you to, to Google whatever you want, to search on Facebook for any page you like. At any time of the day, you choose and it updates as it goes. You will never find an outdated story that has not been already updated. 
Now, there is a dirty joke I could do here about the internet rubbing off on your fingers, but I won't. Oh, you, you can't, you can't say you're not telling a joke while telling the joke. That's not... You've got me. Uh, right, let's move on to uh, ITV. Uh, and despite some less than stellar ratings this year, ITV PLC has actually had a fantastic year, financially speaking. Uh, a lot of this, I think, is down to Downton Abbey. Uh, they announced a 6% rise in profits. Advertising revenues also up... 6%, but crucially, advertising isn't where the big gains were. Uh, in fact, the broadcaster is now less reliant on sponsors than it's ever been, and 49% of ITV's revenues now come from other sources. Uh, Faraz, when Adam Crozier became CEO, uh, this was actually his mission statement, wasn't it? So is it mission accomplished? Adam's, as far as I'm concerned, has, has been a genius in this space. Um, he's, he's been able to um, offset what's happened in, in the advertising downturn. And he saw it coming a long way off before I would argue any other broadcaster and he's done some really clever, smart things to ensure that, that ITV remains a viable business. And I think if you look at what Channel 4 have been doing about investing into um, uh, doing, you know, investing into indies and, and also Sky starting to buy people like The Garden, you've, you've got other people that, that are kind of copying this model because it's actually probably the right model where you're buying up IP and, and using your broadcaster as a way to, to launch IP, make it popular and, and then sell it elsewhere and that's a smart, interesting model that's worked for ITV and, and I think that a lot of credit should go to him. What I would say is that I'm curious to know how sustainable it is. Um, from, from what we've seen, there are more and more international broadcasters and, and brands that are interested in doing full buyouts so this IP model of selling things, something like Downton Abbey across the world I think if you went and did a deal with Netflix I would expect that Netflix would take all your rights and, and all your secondary um, your secondary rights between people and that includes people like Amazon and, and all these kind of new publishers this secondary rights model may have a shelf life and it'll be interesting to see if this model um, that is working for ITV today is sustainable in five years time but if the company is becoming more resilient to the effects of the digital age, its channels are actually struggling. Uh, Alex, on Sunday night recently, ITV was beaten, well, in fact, on all of Sunday, from morning to evening, they were beaten by Channel 4. Um, they have a problem there. What, what should they do? I think that partly that's not ITV, that's Channel 4 getting stronger and Channel 4's commissioning rounds being actually getting more of where the audience is going. So there is still a, a long way for Channel 4 to go, but it's it's getting it more and more and more and for ITV I think partly you need to push towards digital but I'm always going to say that I have a huge bias and because ITV player user experience wise is just stop giving me adverts I appreciate that you'll find it's called ITV hub these days different product completely different it's it's the same thing it's not that different from all four though the experience in all four is similar when it comes to advertising. It's you know it's still three pre-rolls and and then the content and then another five adverts. I mean, it seems to me you talk mm. about Channel Four getting stronger and and they have, in fairness, arguably they've become more mainstream. Uh, but actually, isn't it in a way kind of about ITV slightly appealing to the wrong person? I mean, you think about who used to be the core ITV viewer ten years ago. ITV now appeals much more to me, and that's probably a problem for them, isn't it? <laughs> or I'm a much, problem for you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but I'm much more likely to watch Tom Bradby uh, hosting the news at 10 or uh, a documentary about Marguerite or Michael Gambon playing Churchill, but those are all kind of Channel 4 shows from 10 years ago. <laughs> that just shows that you're getting old, <laughs> I think. Um, no, but no. I'm, a, I'm a middle-class southerner, that's what I'm saying. You know, they're trying to broaden their palette, but they've actually sort of ended up, perhaps, I would argue, showing programmes that are actually more attuned to the people who are running it than the people who used to watch it. I think, yeah, I think you have a point. But I think that there is a massive opportunity on... Net, like, Netflix are winning. Netflix are winning at the sort of content that 
so the, re- the BBC term for it is the uh, appeal to the replenisher audience. So the BBC buzz term of, okay, these people are growing away from our content. How do we get these younger or more digitally savvy or whatever that thing is into our and that's the that's the bit that ITV is missing what is the new exciting thing Downton Abbey was this glorious success still is but it's not a replenisher audience it's not the new young things coming and finding that it's the people we already know and the and the market we already have it's how do you build upon that with this new if ITV just jumped off and went right we're going to do this innovative program they tried it with the ITV question time is that still running or has that already vanished well the agenda with yeah. Tom Bradby yeah I like it there you go I'm exemplifying the issue it's it that's not new that's not exciting it, it's it's uh, well produced but still it's not a new idea it's not pushing boundaries it's not channel 4 is the word it's not it's not anywhere near there is it let's be honest if only, <laughs> if only uh, Jeremy Corbyn was, he was on the show this week, involved in any kind of version of uh, uh, some of the antics they used to get up to on the word, licking out someone's belly button. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, before we head to the break, you may have noticed that uh, Radio 2's obsession with pop-up stations has intensified in the past few years, from Radio 2 Eurovision to the forthcoming Radio 2 Country which I am very excited about. Yes, I am a closet country nerd. Uh, The station has been breaking out of its usual schedule to provide more to the tastes of selected groups of listeners. But how useful are these temporary channels, and is the BBC testing the ground for something bigger from Radio 2 in the future? The media podcast went to BBC Made Avail Studios to find out. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Sam Hunt. I'm excited to let y'all know we will be coming back to C2C this year. Hope y'all can make it out. We'll see y'all soon. Hello, my name's Al Booth and I'm the specialist music editor for Radio 2 and 6 Music. I'm Brett Spencer, I'm editor for the digital output for all of the BBC's popular music radio networks. I think the first one was Five Lives Olympics Sports Extra and that was really about being able to provide a lot more coverage of the Olympics that Five Live couldn't provide just on their own station and on Sports Extra. The first one we did at Radio 2 was Radio 2 Eurovision, and that was really because we wanted to sort of try and reinvent the way we covered Eurovision and to provide a much richer experience from Eurovision fans over several days uh, of what the contest was about. But it's also really crucially for us about getting Radio 2 listeners to listen on digital platforms. So about 54% of our listeners currently listen digitally at some point during the week, but we want to continue to move that on and get them to consume us in different ways, either on DAB or online, as opposed to just listening on FM. Okay, so let's talk about Radio 2 Country then. Last year was the first year that you did that, and it's coming back again. It's all built around Country to Country, which is this huge country music festival at the O2. Partnering with such an obviously commercial entity must have had its own challenges right from the beginning. Well, we've Country to Country has been running for three years as a festival, and from day one, Radio 2, this was before Radio 2 Country last year, but Radio 2 was the broadcast partner. Uh, we do it quite a lot with quite a lot of festivals. We were the broadcast partner for Blues Fest recently. And we've been the broadcast partner for Cambridge Folk Festival. So... What makes this kind of more unique is obviously Radio 2 is the only national station that does do country music. So in that way, it makes absolute editorial sense that we would be uh, reflecting the biggest country festival that there is in the UK on Radio 2 because you know, it just is where people would expect it. 
And bear in mind, in previous years, we had broadcast highlights of the festival on Radio 2. So actually, by broadcasting all of it, we're getting much better value for money for licence fee payers from the money that we're spending on broadcasting that event. So actually, the last year, we're getting a much better deal out of it. Now, how many of the Radio 2 lineup are country fans? Because uh, obviously, you've got Bob Harris, who's the face of country on Radio 2. Uh, but I imagine it's a bit like Five Live and not everyone there likes football. I mean, in the same way, are you having to crowbar some presenters from Radio 2 and say, you're going to present a show all about Dolly Parton or are there enough country fans? Do you know what, it's really interesting because, yeah, ostensibly, no, there aren't that many country fans but once you you actually start talking to the Radio 2 mainstream guys you realise that they do there's actually they say oh well I don't really know much about country music but I do like Dolly Parton and I do like the Eagles and I do like Mary Chapin Carpenter and suddenly you're saying well actually what you're saying is you like quite a lot of, of country music so there's always an access point you know it's been great because we're in the middle of recording some of the of the shows now and I actually was in the studio yesterday with Jeremy Vine recording his Jeremy Vine stomping country which I thought right Jeremy's just done Strictly he likes a bit of country music he turned up at C2C last year he loves Casey Musgraves and I thought right I'll ask him if he'll do a, a dance a kind of dance crazes in country music and as we said before it's all about providing more radio too so if you listen throughout the four days we're on air you will hear those presenters pointing towards radio two country as a choice of listening at the top of hour and that's the only time that really happens on radio two so Jeremy will say at one o'clock you can hear me another hour of me on Radio 2 or we'll point to an alternative programme on, on Radio 2 Country and having all the presenters involved obviously helps us with that because then they have an investment and they're really involved in the content of the station What are the logistical challenges of setting up a live radio station as a pop-up at an event you know you're not even in your own studios uh, and what have you learned from last year that you're going to try and iron out this year We get a great room at the O2 that they give us which is the fancy um, it's called the Fab Room and it's basically where all the kind of VIPs that would be at the O2 would hang out and it's a really excellent room and we get that backstage so it's um, what we can do is it's large enough to, to bring in a full we have a full DJ set up usually got two presenters there we've got space for a band to come in to do some live music there's a little room at the back where the um, interactive guys that are doing the live blog and all the social media stuff that they're all there as well it's the same as doing a, an outside broadcast really for, for Radio 2 itself because you're just saying up a working studio and then there's a, a studio back at Western House that that is set up as the Radio 2 country studio and they're taking all the outside sources and all of that kind of stuff. So it is like there is a little studio on the fourth floor of Western House that becomes Radio 2 country for four days and everything comes out of that. OK, you're both doing far too good a job at publicising the station. What went wrong last year? Looking back on it, what didn't work? I wouldn't say something went wrong, but I think what, what had the potential to go wrong, and Al can speak about this better than me, is explaining to people from the US and from Nashville what we're doing and why we're doing it. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, as soon as you start trying to explain to a manager of a a big country act in Nashville about a pop-up digital station, don't understand pop-up, don't understand what a digital station is, um, Americans usually. They're like, well, what is that? Is that online? It's like, well, it is online, but it's a bit more than that. And so trying to explain that and trying to explain that it is part of Radio 2, but it's not actually Radio 2. And so that that was quite difficult. So we did have situations where we'd gone through the whole process and we got all the all the contracts sorted and then we get to the O2 and the guys on stage are like, we don't know anything about this. What is this? 
no, we don't really want you to take us live. And then you're like, okay, this is the whole point of today. And so then you're having to get into some discussions. But that's that's really about awareness with the Americans and with the, the record companies out of Nashville. And this year is already loads better because we did it last year. And they suddenly saw, I mean, the, the artists saw like huge, massive ramp ups of sales, people that were playing over the weekend after we did Radio 2 Country, you could really, yeah, we shifted some some records for them. So yeah. I think suddenly people are, understand it. Okay, so Radio 1 has Radio 1 Extra, Radio 4 has Radio 4 Extra, Radio 2 has Radio 2 Country and Radio 2 Eurovision. And it seems to me like inside all of these pop-up stations, there's a Radio 2 Extra struggling to get out but it can't because you know commercial radio would kick up such a fuss if you actually propose such a thing. I, I don't think it's that at all, actually, because what you're talking about there is you're talking about starting a new radio station, and what we're talking about is providing more of what Radio 2 does on other platforms. We don't look on these as stations, as it were. We look on these as opportunities to provide much greater coverage of a Radio 2 property, for want of a better word, on other platforms to provide a deeper experience of that event and also to get people to listen on digital platforms. But there's enough the archive. starting up a station. But there's enough archive, isn't there? Friday night is music night going back 50 years or whatever. There's enough archive to do a Radio 2 Extra that the Radio 2 audience would love. You know, if there's enough people listening to Bob Harris for two hours a week that want to listen to three days' worth of it, then obviously every single show you do could do the same thing, no? Silence has descended. It well, doesn't get discussed? <coughs> Secretly, you'd like it's, to do a Radio it's, 2 it's, Extra. It's not, it's not been discussed. Okay. Good luck. What are the highlights? Um, well, I would say Jeremy Vine's Stomping Country, having recorded it yesterday, that's certainly going to be worth a listen. But the highlight is being down there at the, at the O2 and seeing these enormous stars um, from Nashville, uh, one after another across the weekend, you know, performing to 30,000 people. That's pretty amazing. And when we put that out on, on air, that is, um, you know, that feels to me like incredible that we have the opportunity to do that and to bring such contemporary massive country music to such a wide audience and we're excited this year to have a radio two country stage at the o2 as well uh, it's one of the things we felt last year is that we didn't really have much brand awareness if you like for people who are actually at the event so this year we'll have a, our own stage with with live acts playing and talks and that sort of thing enjoy thank you very much please join us march the 10th at midday <laughs> Shall we see what's on the media podcast jukebox today? Ah, delightful. Now, as I'm sure you've noticed, it's about this time every year when all the various media festivals release their early bird tickets. And with so many events to choose from, like Sheffield Dockfest, Radio Days Europe, MIPCOM, the Edinburgh TV Festival, it's good to plan ahead. So, praise be then for your donations, because without them, we wouldn't be able to leave these four walls to bring you our unparalleled coverage. Here on the Media Podcast, not only do we make special editions from those festivals, we carefully select the finest sessions as bonus episodes for you to enjoy in the most convenient way. Because let's face it, if you can't be there in person, audio is the best. Who spends 45 minutes on YouTube, even for Armando Iannucci? All this is only possible because of your support. Because with the stability you can give us, we can plan the shows of the future. You can continue to help us cover these festivals for significantly less than it takes to attend. Just buy us a few quid a month and we'll bring the highlights to you on this podcast. You don't even have to wear a stupid lanyard. Go to themediapodcast.com now and click on Donate. Just a fiver a month will take us to Edinburgh, to Sheffield, to Paris and a tenner might just get us back. TheMediaPodcast.com. It just takes one minute. Do it now. 
Thanks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Right, let's tackle some of the other stories of the week and Dame Janet Smith's review into allegations against Jimmy Savile at the BBC made for some eye-catching headlines. Serious failings, whitewash, the BBC trust must be scrapped, they're just a few. Uh, But now that it's all settled down, uh, what have you made of her report for us? Uh, I haven't read the report because I hear it's huge. I hear it's it's a monster of a... So it's like crazy, like 300,000 words or something insane like that. But, it may um, not have been a full public inquiry, but they went for it as if it were. Yeah, it's like yeah. an um, Encyclopedia Britannica. But, I, you know, it's. I, I think the thing that is, I don't know if it's encouraging is the right word to use, but it just feels old in the sense that it doesn't feel like it's something that could happen today. And I just hope that that's true. Uh, I hope that everything that's been said and everything that's happened in, in that space is, is something that we're, we're so shocked and appalled about it because... It's something that we would never allow to happen now, and and I I just hope that's true. I mean, that's all you can hope for now, um, because I think that I would expect anybody from any level that sees any sort of abuse like that to to report it immediately. And I actually think that that what's happened with with recent cases, and obviously I won't mention any names, but it, it, it does seem that there have been people that have been indicted or have been caught up in this uh, in, in acting inappropriately. Um, to different levels of members of staff and, and they are being reprimanded as, as a result of that and uh, some, some of those people are in prison some of those people are being investigated and I think that that's been the, the kind of positive outcome of this is that people feel like they can come forward and something will be done about it But it was wrong to not report it if you knew anything then and the purpose of the report was to see whether anyone knew anything and Alex, according to this report that has cost millions no one at the BBC no one who worked on Children in Need no one who worked on Jim will fix it no one knew anything which you read all the press lines about just how much of an open secret it was or how many people had inklings of something and then when does an inkling become something you report and when does something you should report become actually harmful to your career, that's the thing and so Lord Hall was up on stage for quite a while, way longer than I thought he would be up during that full morning of being discussed and he was very much saying that everyone should feel like they should come forward and report all these things and still there's a culture of 
you do not become a snoop, you do not become a grass because who hires you after you've told other people? And it's horrible and that shouldn't happen, but it still does. You Talent is still called talent and there's a step aside from the people who aren't front of screen or aren't front of house. And trying to break down those bridges is a key part of what the BBC and any broadcaster, any any newspaper, any media outlet at all should be working towards. But the mentality of people who think they can get away with it still remains. And there's very limited amounts that we can say about this because legal proceedings are going to ensue. Uh, but, well, the question is two words. Tony Blackburn. I, I wouldn't even want to comment on that without knowing exactly what's going to come out of that and, and what the allegations are and um, and what happens from there. What, what I would say... Essentially, he's lost his job because his version of events didn't tally with the BBC's, though. Because they're not saying that he did anything. They're saying his version of events didn't tally with what we would have expected. Is that good enough? I am keeping dead quiet. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've all can, heard lawyers are involved. Can, can I just, just very... Just, I just want to really quickly make this point. Um, so... There is a suggestion in the report that the victims said that they didn't want it taken any further. And there is something that we have to be aware of about the respect of victims in this in this scenario. And if, if you are an exec producer and uh, and you're speaking to that person and they say to you, it's I'm, I'm being quite clear about this, I don't want to do anything with it, we do have to be quite aware of their wishes and how they want to handle it. I don't think it's simply just a case of this person's a producer, an exec producer, and they did nothing with this information. I, I think there are lots more nuances in this. And as, as by the size of the report indicates, it's very complicated and we've got to be a little bit careful about having one broad stroke to say they should have done this instead of doing that Okay, there is no easy segue from that story to the next so I'll just go straight into it Let's talk about the ratings for BBC Three Uh, Two of its new series have made the top ten online shows as measured by the ratings body Barb, that's Cuckoo and Life and Death Row which started new runs last week without a terrestrial broadcast Uh, Is this good news for the controller of BBC Three, Damien Kavanagh. You would assume so, wouldn't you, for us, looking at these figures? <laughs> so, look, my feeling on this is, and I, I, I feel like this across, across the board when it comes to online content, you have to spend money on advertising what you're doing on online. You have to kind of draw attention to it. Uh, I find it really curious that um, the amount of money that BBC has spent on traditional media, pushing them to online media, the amount of billboards that have been out there, newspaper articles, I found it absolutely hilarious that um, Greg from Cuckoo was on the one show launching BBC Three, what's meant to be a youth channel online, by, by cutting a fake digital ribbon, and then they kind of cut outside to them trying to break a selfie record with a, blur, with a blurry photo that was... Uh, um, and they failed to break that record in addition to that. I mean, it, it was, you know, they have made a lot of noise. They've put in a lot of investment to tell people that it's on BBC, it's on BBC Three. And actually, if they didn't get into the top ten of the iPlayer, which is their own own space, then, then I think that would have been a real disaster. The, the question now is whether or not they can sustain that. It's important to note that, and the story came out recently about Clash, Clash of Clans, which is a, an iPhone game, and the amount of money that they've spent on advertising. It's something crazy, like, you know, half a billion pounds has been spent on, on advertising that that game on the App Store, can the BBC sustain that level of investment when it comes to drawing attention to their content online? That's what I'm curious to see, particularly when they've cut money. That's a really interesting point, and of course it it doesn't cost the BBC anything to advertise on their own shows, does it? So, I mean, they don't have to sustain the amount of money, it's just whether it's a fair playing field, Alex. And it it becomes a lot fairer playing field than what we don't realise is, you know, we talked about the idea of there only being one channel, only being two channels, then three, then four, then five, then Sky Start, and it was 
loads more channels. You've just opened yourself up to YouTube as a competitor. You've just opened yourself up to Netflix, Amazon Prime. And if Netflix can afford to spend $50 million a series, as they did do on House of Cards, the BBC cannot compete with that level of production. You know that that has the names and the and the writing and just the brilliance of that program. It brings people in. They're advertising it across the online. They're advertising it in very viral ways. Like, like you like you were saying, people use clever marketing tactics. So I've been privy to a couple of private briefings about how new things are marketed. They don't put it on TV. They don't put it on the one show. They go to key YouTubers and key Instagrammers and work with them in content partnerships. And that's something it's outside Radio One that the BBC hasn't been as quick on as its competitors. But the BBC is not trying to compete with House of Cards on BBC Three, are they? They're trying to do public service programming for young people. If they're trying to get sixteen to twenty-four year olds into programming, which, if you look at the average age of BBC Three, it hasn't done in the past, and so this, this move we're still yet to get the demographics of, of this. But Netflix hits that, Instagram hits that, YouTube hits that square in the face to move those people into this space. It is difficult and I think without some genius innovations in how they touch it and how they innovate around it it always felt like it wasn't fully thought through at the time they didn't have, if you look at the amount of 22, 23 year old people, 24 year old people actually employed by the BBC particularly in editorial or production roles it shows you know what's the best way to reach 16 to 24 year old people hire 16 to 24 year old people to to make or to push out or to advertise this content and i've, I've said this a number of times but i can I, I continue to, to to mention it the reality is is that the bbc had a point of difference when it comes to younger audiences when they're competing with amazon and netflix and all of those people that you could not buy your way into and that's that they had a tv channel and now they don't have a tv channel so they are the same as all of those other competitors and they are going to have to figure out how they're going to be able to be more noisy and be able to cut through to that audience when they are competing with other things that are on your phone screen or on your computer screen they didn't have to do that when they had a tv channel okay whilst we're talking about amazon and netflix uh, that moves uh, seamlessly onto top gear uh, because there is some uh, suspicion that Netflix will be picking up the BBC's new Top Gear. Uh, obviously, they'll show it first run on BBC Two, but then perhaps six months later it will be available to stream in the UK, uh, and perhaps it'll even go out simultaneously in the States and places like that on Netflix. And of course, that will go against Amazon's new big Clarkson show. Uh, Alex, this has actually got bigger now than Clarkson versus the BBC. This has become Netflix versus Amazon. And that is where it becomes fascinating. So we talked earlier about ITV's model of how they're syndicating programmes. Because of the unique way the BBC is funded, they don't have enough money to sustain themselves by not selling to all sorts of people for all sorts of incredible prices. Doctor Who works because it's so fancy and it's so well sold overseas. Uh, And Top Gear is in that exact category. And I still think Clarkson will win. I, I really do, because it feels... Did you ever watch The Big Breakfast? Yes. When Johnny Vaughan and Denise Van Outen left, can you remember the next presenter? Uh, that's a great question. Was it Richard Bacon? I don't know. Chris, o- Chris O'Connell, I think. It was <laughs> probably Rufus Hound. It's always Rufus Hound. <laughs> anyway, I take your point. And yeah. there in last So once yeah. you've taken out like Clarkson and well, those three, but mainly Clarkson were that show. You've now made me think that, that Chris Evans should have brought along Gabby Roslin and Zig and Zag <laughs> <laughs> as his top gear co That I would have watched. <laughs> and so you're thinking it's like that in reverse because you know Chris Evans obviously the, the big the part of the Big Breakfast start, but. Once you remove the defining characteristics of a programme and it just becomes a programme about cars with people who might be as funny, who might be as engaging, who might be as challenging as Clarkson et al. 
you are risking a huge amount for the for the sake of a brand. But actually, doesn't this conversation, in a way, misunderstand the fact that on the internet, although it's fun to talk about Amazon versus Netflix, actually, viewers get to see both. I mean, if you're interested in cars and you're interested in humour, you like Clarkson and you like Chris Evans, you can see both. You don't see them as competitors. You watch both. You watch one after the other. But then that's that goes from seven ninety nine or you know what nine ninety nine a month for Netflix plus Amazon's. Although it'd be, it's cheaper for the moment, I can't that's imagine. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can't imagine that's going to stay for longer plus your license fee when does a spending stop and if you look at the way that people look at news sites people only look at one news site a day people will only could only subscribe to one or two things it's do they pick amazon and netflix or do they pick netflix and something else or amazon and something else we because it's so new we don't know what the audience data will show about how just how many things people subscribe to it's the great unknown and my guess is that netflix have got it right Amazon are adding it as an extra and taking the sort of BT model of have our TV for free if you sign up for some other things. We just have no idea. So that's that's a question, isn't it? Just, uh, producer Matt has just passed me an iPhone Wikipedia page, and uh, apparently Paul Tonkinson and Donna Air took over from uh, <laughs> from Chris and Gavin, so, uh, from Johnny and Denise. So, uh, so. Yeah. But you know, it's it's curious because there's a conversation about well, who's going to win when it comes to Top Gear or Richard Hammond, Clarkson, and and May shows is going to be. But if you talk about Netflix versus Amazon, everybody goes, well, obviously Netflix are going to win. If you talk about Clarkson versus Chris Evans, well, obviously, Clark- I mean, there's, there's obviously a clear strategy from Amazon to try and get that mind share and they'll use this show as well as they've used High Castle and, and um, Mr. Robot to kind of push it in, in that uh, and, and get a credibility in that space as well. But I think that this story, you know, I would be kind of surprised if Netflix didn't pick up the secondary rights to Top Gear. I mean, it was always going to happen. The brand is still called Top Gear. It's, you know, it's coming up six months after outside of the iPlayer window it's what I expect to see on Netflix anyway so I'm not particularly surprised about this particular story but good news for we were talking in the last episode that Chris Evans was heading up to the, the upfronts and that you know people from around the world were going to see whether they liked the clips that they saw it, it appears BBC Worldwide have done a good enough job packaging that that lots of companies around the world do want to buy it yeah, but it's, it's got Top Gear as a name. I mean, there's, I, Simple I think as that. that you could put Zig and Zag yeah, presenting exactly. it. They'd still I, I absolutely think that, particularly for the first series, it is a curio- the first series is going to be a curiosity. Everyone is going to tune in to see what the first episode of Top Gear is going to be like. Mm. I think that there's been a mix of, of reality and, and PR work going on about, you know, can Chris Evans drive a car and, uh, and talk at the same time? I, I can almost guarantee that the first clip that you're going to see of Top Gear is Chris Evans driving a car and not saying anything, and there's a bit of a nod and a wink to the camera. That's what's going to happen, because that's part of the fun of Top Gear that's what you see it, they did it when there was a whole you know uh, when, when Clarkson was there and every time a news story broke where he did something a little bit naughty they had a nod and a wink at a camera and, and you would expect that sort of banter or humour to continue when they're going in with Chris Evans and so that's what's going to happen and uh, I think the first season people are going to watch it they're going to tune in and as is always the case with this sort of thing we've got to see what happens halfway through the season and, and when it comes to recommission I mean something that they probably won't be making a cheeky reference to is what Bob Mortimer the comedian tweeted out this week uh, he called Top Gear a time bomb uh, most of the press covered that uh, can you unpick that story for us what was the gossip behind the scenes there it, 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 it is a time bomb if you're going to be as uh, you know be be as as obvious as that I mean you know it's either going to work the bomb is either going to explode it's going to be amazing but the bomb was Chris Evans and Bob Mortimer is close friends with Lisa Clark who's the executive who left the production according to the press because she fell out with Chris Evans Uh, what about his ego but then Clarkson was a time bomb and I don't think anybody was surprised that it ended the way it was was, but that's the point isn't it have they learnt anything I think that if you're going to create a show that is about personalities talking about 
um, high testosterone subjects like cars, then there's going to be a difficult scenario that ensues. And, you know, I'm, I still have yet to see anybody else come to the fore that could beat Chris Evans in this space as, as a personality to take on this mantle. So I think that everybody was going to want to see it. And you know what? If he's difficult and he's going to be uh, a tricky person to follow, I would rather it was that way around rather than have kind of three unknown faces that were quite bland and you ended up getting quite a vanilla show a la what, what Top Gear was before the rebrand when Clarks came along in the first place. Okay, the media quiz is along shortly. That's a bit of clickbait for you. Uh, but before we get there, let's talk about clickbait. If the BBC stopped publishing soft news stories online, soft news, the commercial sector, apparently, could grow by £8 million a year. Uh, that is according to a government-commissioned report. Alex, explain first of all what is meant by soft news, and then secondly, tell us whether you agree. Uh, soft news is so you move away from the big news so we move away from the EU debate and certain bits of Trump's coverage around the US election we move away from the migrant crisis in Calais we move towards I mean Amanda uh, Shed <laughs> for, example, for example or we move towards sort of uh, the cat pictures on the back of New Day or we move towards interesting things that you will talk about but you won't have your mind changed about it because it's not serious news and the BBC historically has not done enough of it the BBC has, as a brand, the capacity and the audience to work through all of the nonsense on the internet. And same as what we're trying to do at Metro.co.uk is distill that and curate it in a very reputable and truthful way. And I commissioned and petitioned and worked hard to make the BBC do more of it because it's what the BBC should be doing. You, in the same way as its TV shows don't have to be either populist or incredibly niche you can do both and you should do both and the BBC has to be where its audience are or where its audience could be or where its audience wants to be and part of that is distilling the internet into a usable and readable or consumable form so they do do a bit of it don't they I'm thinking here about I think they call it BBC magazine don't they online uh, there's magazine which is actually an in-depth feature list uh, there's BBC trending which is yeah. a mixed media thing with a blog and a video outlet and they appear on BBC world news a lot BBC uh, Terrestrial less so and BBC Trending picks up trends without being too mean because they have to maybe 24 hours after they've been covered elsewhere and they talk to the people involved in them and they, they add value to them so they're kind of providing a service of trending news for the people who don't follow trending news So that's the stuff the government says the BBC might consider stopping doing and you're saying they're not doing enough of it the big proposal in the BBC Charter was to bring more 16 to 24 year olds into this space and you should not patronise and only offer soft news but if you somehow exclude a big part of what they care about as their entry point to what the BBC News service offers then you are well you know you, you are removing that entry point so why would they visit you when they visit when BuzzFeed is spending hundreds of thousands of pounds on big serious investigations but your entry point to BuzzFeed is the 17 things that you didn't know about Romford and then you happen to click on this earnest investigation in partnership with Newsnight that unearths some great conspiracy it's the way the market works so it can't be the way that the BBC it can't be removed from the BBC. Now, the Press Gazette also highlighted, and I quote, that the BBC's rival commercial radio stations could get a boost of up to £38 million a year if the corporation's music and sports radio services concentrated on lower-profile sports and offered a broader range of music. 
I mean, yeah, for us, isn't that just a version of saying if BBC One was shit, more people would watch ITV? I mean, we know this. <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love it if they made that suggestion about television and they were starting to say that, oh, the World Cup shouldn't be on the BBC. I'd like to see what the outcry of that would be, where you would only be able to watch the World Cup or the Olympics on, on, uh, on ITV. I imagine that there'll be a few people that are quite upset about that. But in radio, they do suggest it. And the talk is, and it, these rumours were quashed, weren't they? But the talk is out there that Five Live was under consideration, that they might move Five Live online. What do you think of that? I, th- I think that there's a curious thing that's happening in the industry, and I, I think that this is happening faster than television moving online. I think that radio moving online is, is happening at a much quicker speed, um, and I think we're seeing a lot of people listening to radio via internet-connected devices, be it their phone or be it, um, uh, be it a, a Sonos system or, or whatever it might be. You, you, there, there is a definite trend where people are taking their, their audio consumption. I mean, we're on a podcast. You know, people are taking their audio consumption now digitally. And, and actually, there is, a, uh, there is an argument to say that, that we should be looking at, where, at the BBC providing more services in that space. But I imagine it would happen organically rather than happening you know, via the, the sword of, of whoever these... Uh, these regulators are. The BBC put out a statement pretty sharpish to deny, as I say, that they're thinking about moving Five Live online. But Alex, do you think that is feasible? The Independent has moved online, BBC Three has moved online. Is it feasible? I think in the long term, yes. The second that car radios catch up to being digital only, absolutely, because you think, I can't remember the last time I listened to a radio when it was actually through an FM signal or even a DAB signal. The only people listening to radio are the people who are of an older generation or the people who are driving to work. So that's a lot of people. It, and that's my, point, that's my point. So it is a lot of people for the moment. But you can see, I think, like like you were saying, organically, it's just that people are growing into it, and it's easier to consume digital radio. You don't have to tune a dial. You don't have to push buttons. You just press go. And the iPlayer uh, radio app is very very good. But for a news and sports station, you need to be just there, don't you, on tap for everyone? It's going to be 20 years before we get to the stage where everyone has access to getting the news in the way you're describing. Nothing could be easier than turning on an AM signal, however crackly it sounds. Yeah, but I I would argue that that things can't get much easier than plugging in your phone to your car, and that's getting easier and easier. The amount of people that own a car and have their phone Bluetooth to their car or have it as a lining connection, people aren't reaching for their dial on their, I don't think, on their car radio. They're reaching to plug in their phone and listen to the audio that's coming out of there, and they may listen to live... um, live radio um, via TuneIn or via the iPlayer app and uh, or they may be listening to their own music library on, on their phone. That's been happening for, for quite a long period of time it's now. It's still 20 years away. I'm a podcast evangelist. It's still 20 years away. What, are, are people turning off Saying nothing radios? could be easier than listening to online audio in your car. That is 20 years away. I, I've said that before. The radio is easier. I've said that before. <laughs> that I, I, I forget where I wrote it, but I was writing that there was no possible way that the FM signal needs to survive. And I got these really a number of really frustrated emails about people who live... Once again, it's our London privilege. There is nowhere, yeah. without, there is nowhere without... Uh, well, few areas without 4G. Nowhere is without 3G, except for the, my bedroom, which is still a black spot. But everywhere outside London you don't have those receptions and that that's where you, you have a point but still you, you can have 10 years you can't have 20 before we go there is just time for our media quiz oh ho- hooray this week it is entitled life in Salford with David Attenborough the celebrated zoologist and broadcaster hasn't been to Salford this week but if he had how would he describe the following stories connected to Media City UK? Let's find out through my, it says here in my script that I hadn't read yet, excellent impersonation. Uh, it's quickfire, uh, so just buzzing with your name when you know the Salford story. Uh, so Alex, you will say... Alex. And Faraz, you will say... Faraz. The loser receives the complete box set of Don't Scare the Hair. The winner gets Mr Bloom. 
Right, so this is my apparently excellent impression. Uh, here comes uh, Salford story number one. Buzz in when you know the answer and please put me out of my misery. As the dominant male swims upstream, a plague descends on Key House. The vermin are insects of the order Blatodia, and they are looking more resilient than the plans for BBC Studios. But what's the story? Faraz, is this about Peter Salmon leaving BBC Studios in the lurch by, by walking away? Yes. Uh, Peter Salmon is leaving the BBC as The Guardian reports that cockroaches have moved into one of the buildings occupied by the corporation, so that was <laughs> why we were doing the natural history thing. Salmon Whee! swam upstream, that was what that was. Uh, right, here is execrable impression number two. It's dawn, and the pack are in mourning. Their elder has been taken from them 56 years after his coronation. His stories. Alex. Yes, Alex. There you go. The bloke who made Coronation Street has died. Correct. Uh, Tony Warren, the creator of Coronation Street, has died at the age of 79. Calling him the bloke that created Coronation Street, I don't know if that gives you a half point. <laughs> but for the sake of jeopardy, I'll give you an equal point and, and it's all Tony to play Warren. for. Tony Warren. Tony Warren, yes. Uh, no longer with us. Uh, and worked on Corrie for, like, ages. They like, created it when he was 23 or something. That's the thing to come out of those stories. He's just very much like... He was just a boy when I when I, when he was first. Like you're such a whipper, yeah. whipper snapper. Yeah, extraordinary. Uh, right, okay. Here we are. Salford story number three. It's the tiebreaker. It's dusk, and the lesser spotted presenters that cover the night shift traverse the landscape like so many before, but their calls will not be heard in the key tonight, for the predatory Salford City Council is near. Uh, Faraz, this is about Salford City being bastards and, and banning swearing <laughs> that is fucking correct the council have planned to curb swearing around media city uk following complaints from residents uh, so if you're working in the area including the comedian mark thomas who's playing at the uh, theater up there soon you're not supposed to swear i know but then when, when does a swear begin and a curse end bugger if i know uh, but that means faraz is the winner today congratulations Hooray! well done uh, that is our show for today uh, my thanks to Faraz Osman and to Alex Hudson now if you're thinking I'm new to the media podcast but I'm already thinking about how to fit it into my busy life on a regular basis then the best way to do it is to subscribe go to themediapodcast.com and all the links that you need there for iTunes or Pocket Cast or Stitcher and other unpopular programs are there welcome aboard today's show is dedicated to Dr Stuart Higgins the producer of the podcast Scientists Not the Science Human Stories from the Science World and he loves trying to score full marks on the media quiz whilst doing experiments in the lab. I hope my David Attenborough impression didn't just ruin that pleasure for you, Stuart. Uh, Plus, all the wonderful people who have felt moved by the sound of Nimrod to set up a regular contribution ensuring our long-term survival. James Ball, Richard Walkington, Maurice Giles, thank you chaps. To join these swelling ranks and keep us on the air, just go to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate. It takes one minute. Do it now. I've been Ollie Mann. The producer was Matt Hill. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. And until next time... Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.